I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health and fitness industry to bring you the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Spencer, and this is part two of my interview with Alex Sujung Kim Pang. And if you haven't already, I really recommend going back to last week's episode and listening to part one so you can listen to this whole interview in context. But very briefly on Alex, he's the founder of The Restful Company, a consulting company in Silicon Valley. He's a visiting academic at Stanford University. He has a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and is the author not only of the book Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less, but another book which I'm also keen to read called The Distraction Addiction. And he's also written for Slate, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, and the Scientific American publications. So in this episode, in part two, we talk about the importance of taking breaks. And we quote some of the scientific studies around the benefits of building breaks into your schedule. We talk about the importance and significance of walking on creativity and focus. We talk a little bit about play and heartfulness and doing things that you love. And we talk finally about exercise and what benefits that that brings to us and how that actually becomes part of your deliberate rest or deliberate recovery program. And we're giving away a free copy of Alex's book, Rest, to anyone. We're going to pick someone at random. All we need you to do is jump onto iTunes, leave a review for this episode and mention the book. And we'll enter you into a random draw and one of you will win a free copy and we'll post that out to you so that you too can enjoy all the ideas Alex has in this brilliant book. So good luck with that. Enjoy this episode. Well, let's talk about some of the ways then that you can practice deliberate rest. Yeah. And let's start off with walking. You quoted in the book a fascinating study led by Jenny Rowe, and she performed some EEG experiments on the scalps of walkers to find out what that did to, I believe, their creativity. Tell us about yes. that. So, you know, there is this idea for a long time that walking stimulates creativity, right? You know, Soren Kierkegaard has this line about how I have walked my way into my best thoughts. Hmm. And what Roe found was, you know, by putting these portable EEG machines that, you know, fit in backpacks and then having people walk through different parts of Edinburgh, she could actually observe differences in the way that people's brains responded to green areas, parks, that sort of thing, and or the high street or urban areas. And what it turns out is that people's brains kind of calm down and become sort of less aroused, as scientists would put it, in green spaces, which suggests basically greater opportunity for mind-wandering and creative insight. But it's not just where you walk that matters. The simple fact of walking also stimulates creativity. So there was a Stanford study that found that even if you're just walking on a treadmill facing like a cinder block wall, you do better on creativity tests than you do if you're just sitting. And so there is something about the physical act of walking we don't quite understand is yet, but we can measure its effects that unlock or stimulate something in our creative abilities. So it turns out that the stories about walking being important for insight really have some verifiable experimental basis. 
Yeah. Well, we know as well that movement can stimulate neurogenesis, so the production of new brain cells, get fresh mm-hmm. oxygenated blood moving throughout the body. Yes. That's possibly an endorphin effect as well, depending on, I suppose, the briskness of the walking, as well as, I'm sure, some dopamine and some serotonin and, and other kind of chemicals that make us feel good. And if we feel mm-hmm. good, we're priming our bodies to be in a better state, I would imagine, for creating. Yeah. I think this is all stuff that makes total sense and I hope that researchers actually try and measure this, right? Mm. That they haven't tried yet, but I would expect that it would be a really interesting study to try to undertake. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Do we know why as well those walkers had better creativity scores when they were outside in the green spaces? Mm-hmm. Well, what it seems to be is that natural spaces divert your attention a little bit, but not an awful lot. So if you were running this experiment, let's say in an unfamiliar natural location in a war zone, then you would be a lot more amped up and you would not be relaxed. You'd be worried about being eaten or so forth. So natural spaces that are sort of familiar, that are safe, are ones in which it seems our brains can be a little bit occupied, but not terribly. And it's an effect similar to what people have seen with some of us when we go into cafes. You know, for some of us, the background noise of a cafe, so long as it's not too loud, so long as there aren't fascinating conversations that we get caught (laughs) up in, provide just a little bit of distraction and leave the rest of our minds freer to just kind of wander and think about, you know, whatever they want to think about. And... Mm -hmm. If we've been working on something really hard for the last couple hours, what our brains tend to gravitate back to is that stuff that we've been working on. And so that sets the condition for our subconscious kind of playing around with ideas or problems that we hadn't solved and running through combinations or possibilities and maybe coming up with solutions that we hadn't before. It's just getting that bit of headspace, isn't it? Exactly, yes. From, from what you're doing. Um, right. I mean, that brings us, I guess, to meditation. Um, that is a very important aspect of deliberate rest for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that something that you do? Do you have a meditation practice? Yes, yeah. You know, I think I'm a terrible meditator. On the other hand, I think that what I find is that if I'm able to do it well for even like a couple seconds, If I can think about nothing for just a second, I can think about one thing for a really long time. And so I find there is an awful lot of value to it. Um, I think also that for those of us with that kind of practice, it's important also to recognize that there is a difference between mind wandering and the monkey mind, you know, the super distracted mind that can't focus on any particular thing, which is what Buddhist teachers since time immemorial have kind of cautioned against. Mm. Right? This is part of what we want to get under control and what people like Sherry Turkle and Nicholas Carr argue is being fed by you know smartphones and Twitter and Facebook and so on. Sure. You know, mind wandering is a little different. Mind wandering is not your brain kind of jumping from one subject to another subject to another subject, but rather the mind having a certain kind of, I think, openness and serenity at its best, that is actually similar to the kind of mental state that you get into when you meditate. Hmm. And we have yet to really 
follow rigorously the connection between mindfulness and mind wandering. But I think that there is some evidence that suggests a little counterintuitively that the better you are at being able to focus your mind, the better also you are at being able to unfocus it in a way that is restorative and creative. But, you know, maybe in a few years to be back on the show to talk about someone having actually, you know, unraveled that puzzle. Yeah, it'd be fascinating. I just want to ask you, because there's a lot of guilt around meditation. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very popular. I mean, none more so than in Silicon Valley where you are, but oh, even, yeah. you know, I know that everyone is. And indeed, it's a very, you know, Aaron Huffington, Mark Benioff of Salesforce. There's a lot of, of big corporate leaders who attribute a lot of the success to their long-standing meditation practice. So mm-hmm. I think that will catch on over here. But already, you know, we're starting to kind of tune to meditation, particularly in the sphere that I operate in. But there's a lot of guilt around it. People say to me, look, I just can't get into it. I feel like I'm missing out. I feel like I'm not getting it. And you say you were a terrible meditator. But well, why do you say that? Because I think it might well, be a comfort to some people. You know, someone who's written a book all about this still yeah. feels he's not a great meditator. No, I mean, I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek in the sense yeah, sure. that, I mean, I've met Buddhist monks who've been doing this for you know 50 years, and they say, yeah, I'm a terrible meditator too. But What I mean by that is that there is a kind of stereotype of meditation as this kind of blissful experience. And for me, it's not like that in the sense that clearing your mind actually is an awful lot of work. At least it is for me, right? It is. It's actually, in a sense, the perfect example of deliberate rest because it is not at all passive. It is, for me, a very active thing. It's something that requires substantial effort. It's something I've gotten slowly, you know, a little better at over time. But, you know, the important thing is that as bad as I feel that I am at it, it still delivers outsized benefits. And ultimately, even not doing it very well is so much better than not doing it all. And I think, you know, in a way that's any other kind of active rest, if you take great pleasure and get a lot of recovery out of playing a musical instrument not very well, or painting not very well, don't worry about the fact that you're not brilliant at it. Appreciate the fact that you get something out of it. Yeah. And the other thing, a couple of things I'll add, I think meditation does not necessarily need to be using an app or not using an app or sitting Mm -hmm. in a conventional position, eyes shut, deep breathing, but it could be painting, it could be knitting, it could be walking. These things can yes. be meditative, and it doesn't matter if it fits the conventional definition of meditation. If you're getting the meditative benefits, yes. it counts. Exactly. What I was going to say is I wear a piece of wearable technology called the Ura Ring. I don't know if you know ah, the kit. Yes, sure, yeah. sure. And when I meditate, I can see in the data on the app that it logs it. If I've done it well, adverted commas, it will log it mm-hmm. as a restful period. So it hmm. detects a change in my physiology and thinks, okay, she's resting because her heart rate variability has gone up, her resting heart rate has gone down. So mm-hmm. it logs it as a restful period. And I think that's fascinating. So that's the profound change on my physiology. Very interesting. That it happens, yeah. Okay, sorry, go on. No, I mean, I think that part of the bottom line here is that there are a wider range of things that we should think of as restful and as restorative. And just as many different things can be mindful or help us practice there are lots of contexts in which we can practice mindfulness. So two, I think, are the range of things that turn out to be restful 
are more diverse than conventional wisdom teaches. This is one of the things that was most surprising that I found researching the book, but which I think is you know, really important for us to recognize, you know, to either make better choices about how we rest or to recognize the potential for things that we might really like to do that we don't recognize yet as restful, but which really are. Yeah. I describe some of what you're saying there as heartfulness. So hmm. in that, I mean, contribution, doing something for others, or mm-hmm. just getting back to something you used to love doing and the convergent pressures of work and home have squeezed out the bandwidth that you believe you have for it. Maybe it's mm-hmm. I used to love reading. I used to love walking. I used to love football, whatever it might be. Getting back to something that you used to love is this part of the umbrella of heartfulness. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people, they don't feel they've got time for that anymore. You know, I used to love doing that. And now it's just toil. That's an right. important part of rest as well, I believe. Yes. I talk in the book about recovery experiences. Mm. And you know, one of the things that it turns out that make things restful is their activities that give us control of our time. And we see this whether we're talking about, you know, sports or exercise or walking or even going on vacations, Mm. right? Vacations where you feel like you have a high level of control over your time are ones that you get more out of than vacations where, you know, you're trying to get from this museum to this other attraction to this thing and you have less control over how you spend your time and what you see because you're giving that control over to a list or, you know, a tour book or a tour guide. Mm. And so... That sense of control over your time is something that is psychologically really important for people, particularly people who are in industries or in in professions where on a daily basis, anything can happen, right? If you work in a hospital or you're law enforcement or you're a consultant who has clients who call all the time, in those kinds of reactive, unpredictable jobs having periods where you can take back control over your time and decide what you're going to do and how are you going to do it, that is a really important component of rest and recovery. Mm. And in a sense, a really significant part of things that are either really engaging or heartful is that they're things that are easy for us to do if we allow ourselves to. And that heightens that dimension of control. It heightens other things that make activities restful and restorative than being relaxing, you know, our ability to do them without having to like make ourselves do them. But they also provide a sense of kind of mental detachment from our ordinary lives and our daily work, which is another important component that determines whether something is really restful or not. Mm. You touched on something there, which I I feel quite passionate about, which is a simple way to create more time is to say no to more things. And that's one way of just taking control over your time. Mm -hmm. Doing things that you have to is something you mentioned. And you hear that quite a bit. Oh, I've got to go to this and I've got to do that. Have you really got to do that? I describe myself as being quite a selfish person. And in the context of, I'm very protective over my time. I haven't always been. But I am now. I'm careful. I'm sure you are the same. Careful what you say yes to, careful what you commit to, so that you can preserve enough time in the day to do things that really matter because you can directly see the benefit on your work, on your productivity, in all aspects of life. Mm -hmm. No, I think that the people I've studied are almost uniformly ruthless about 
mm-hmm. how they spend their time and whether they say yes or no to things. They're really careful about this issue. And it's important because not only are peripheral activities ones that take up a lot of energy, but it's also the fact that you know the world does not give us opportunities to rest. We often think, I'll rest when I'm done with everything else. Well, you're never done with everything else. And so it's essential, I think, to take rest seriously enough to say no to other things so that you have time for it. And I think if you recognize its value, then the odds are better that you'll actually do that. Yeah. And if you do that, you feel like you've got more autonomy. And there are many studies I know that have proved that's a major contributor mm-hmm. to happiness. So. Yes. This is also true, it turns out, for organizations as well as individuals. And I've actually been doing a study now of companies that have been moving to four-day work weeks or six-hour mm-hmm. days, right, cutting their working hours by 20 or 25%. And one of the things that the successful companies do is they get really, really clear on what their most important tasks are, and they focus on those, and they cut everything else out. So mm-hmm. places that used to have hour-long weekly meetings now have you know five-minute meetings because turns out that's all you need in order to make decisions, even though calendar programs set one hour as a default. So at the organizational level, too, of saying no to stuff is an important first step in kind of clearing the space necessary to do really good work and to have time for rest. Yeah. Are you standing at the moment, I think? I am, yes. Yeah, I thought thought so. Standing meetings, not only are there benefits toward people's creativity and free thinking, but they're very good at cutting a meeting short. Oh, yeah. Just get the business in question done and no prevarication. So, okay, I'm quite a big, big fan of that. A couple of things. So, the importance of taking breaks. There was a study done by the University of the Sydney Centre for the Mind, all about pieces of paper. <laughs> Tell us about that. <laughs> so the Sydney Centre study, they were interested in the role of breaks in creativity and sort of knowing and whether consciously taking breaks would have an effect on creative thinking. So yeah. what they did was that they had two groups doing creativity tests, taking, you know, these two rounds with a break in between. And they were doing math problems because, you know, when you're doing math problems, you can't like mind wander and, or consciously come up with solutions to this creativity sort of problem that they were posed. And what they found was that the group that didn't know that there was a second round for this creativity test, right? You take the creativity test, math problems, and then, hey, you're going to do this again. Uh, Their score the second time was a little lower. Mm -hmm. There was a second group, though, that had been told beforehand, you're going to do this test, you'll do the problems, and then you'll do the test again. They scored higher than the first group, But their second round scores were actually higher than their first round scores. They were more creative the second time around than the first, even though their conscious minds had been occupied with these other problems. And what this tells us is that when we know we're going to be coming back to a problem, this kind of nudges our creative subconscious to continue working on that problem, even where conscious minds are doing other things. And so this helps explain, I think, why it is that 
successful creative people work breaks very consciously into their schedules, Mm. right? You know, they often will spend like 90 minutes or two hours working on something and then put down the pen, get up, go do something else for 10 or 15 minutes, and then go back to work or take the long walks. Basically, the breaks really do turn out to provide an opportunity both for physical recovery, just to give your eyes a chance to stare into the middle distance or to get the blood flowing again. Mm -hmm. But while that's going on, your subconscious is also continuing to churn away at things. And so, in a sense, kind of just continuing to work on stuff on your behalf. So there's that kind of creative stimulus element. And it's also a way of recognizing the fact that focus follows a rhythm, right? That we have these natural phases where we're able to concentrate hard on things for roughly 80 to 90 minutes to maybe about two hours on the outside. And then after that, our capacity for focus really takes a nosedive. Mm -hmm. And rather than trying to power through that, it turns out to be better to take a break let your brain rest a little bit, get your energy back, and then after you know, 10 or 15 minutes, go back to it. And in that second round, you get more done, you're more creative than you would if you just force yourself to stay at your desk and to keep working. Yeah. And I think not just from a mental perspective, but from a physiological perspective, moving, taking a break, doing something else definitely works for me. And I sometimes find this resistance around that. You know, people yeah. don't feel that they're interrupting their flow, but the science disproves that. And I challenge yes. anyone who's resistant to that day, just try it. Try to yeah. make the and see no. what it does. Yeah. And, you know, I think one really valuable thing is, and it's counterintuitive, but taking a break while you are, not once you've reached the end of a piece of work, but you've almost reached it, you know. Yeah. And Ernest Hemingway talked about doing this. If you stop in mid-sentence, it's easier to start the next morning. Mm. But it's also the case that, you don't just finish the next sentence, but your mind has been working on the next paragraph and the next page. And so as a strategy for kind of keeping your creative mind going, keeping the momentum going, it's really valuable. Yeah. Brilliant. In the final few minutes, I just want to talk about the importance of exercise, which is perhaps sure. what people might think is a contrast to rest and recovery. But uh-huh. actually, you talk, yeah, you talk about a couple of examples. Haruki Murakami, the author, is one that you quote on how exercise improves our brain plasticity, mm-hmm. but also improves creativity and focus and is a contributor in balance, of course, to rest and recovery. Just in yeah. the last few minutes, just sort us a little bit about that, please. Sure. You know, I think this is one of the most striking things that I found when I was writing the book, partly because, you know, certainly in the States, I and mean, we often think of intellectuals as being unathletic or athletes as not being terribly smart. And this it really is a tragic misunderstanding because not only are there lots of great thinkers who turn out to be really serious athletes and vice versa, but it turns out, you know, we've learned a lot about how exercise strengthens the brains and the body's ability to do hard, sustained work. It provides a really important opportunity for recovery. And it also provides social and emotional benefits that turn out to pay dividends over decades. And there's this wonderful study about how more than 90% of female executives in Fortune 500 companies had been athletes in high school or in college. Mm. 
Hmm. And it's a high number for men, but it is super, super high for women. And so I think that, I mean, for a writer like Murakami, right, running marathons for him is kind of like writing in the sense that it requires a similar kind of pacing and stamina and reflection, but in a very different kind of circumstance. Obvious ways that writing a book and running a marathon are different, but for him, you know, it's appealing because they actually have a deep similarity that mm -hmm. makes both for him very, very rewarding. But, you know, I think the bottom line is that just as there's that great Wellington saying about how, you know, the Battle of Waterloo was won on the playing fields of Eton, playing fields turn out to be the places in which a lot of other things turn out to be won as well. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of great discoveries, great poems, or of great pieces of music. So, it's really important, I think, for those of us who spend a lot of time in our own minds or, you know, or professionals to recognize the importance of exercise and, you know, to find sports or other kinds of exercise that really work for us and go out and do them. Yeah, I think that's hugely important. And not just exercise, and, but activity as well. I, I think mm -hmm. there is a distinction between activity and exercise. Exercise is a planned session of a certain duration, a certain type. Activity is active rest. It's right. moving, it's yeah. transport, it's going to be made to be using your feet or a bicycle, perhaps. So, yeah. And I think what you do in the book very well is make that point, amongst many others. So the book is called Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less. It's published by Penguin. It's out now. It's a brilliant read. So I recommend that to people. And it can be got on Amazon, I think, anywhere where you can buy books. Your blog is deliberate.rest. Uh, you mm -hmm. are at A-S-K, Ask Pang. On Twitter, uh, the company website is www.restful.company. Is there anything else you'd like to add in terms of your contact point or social media links? Well, I also know I have a podcast, which oh. URL, yeah, you know, I don't remember the URL, but you can find it through both Twitter and the blog. We will so, find it and link to that in the yes. show notes, along with everything else we've talked about, and of course, the book. I have an extra copy of the book, so we're going to give it away to somebody who leaves us a review based on this episode on iTunes. So... If you're listening, all you need to do is leave a review, go to iTunes, subscribe, and also leave a review for this particular show, and we'll pick someone at random and send them a copy of the book. But of course, if you don't want to do that and you want to go off and buy it, which is what I'm sure Alex would love you to do and I recommend <laughs> you do, do that, jump on Amazon and, and go right ahead. Alex, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Leanne. Brilliant. Thank you. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? jump on our website, bodyshopperformance.com and click on take the test. And it'll take you through to a very short two to three minute health IQ test. At the end of that, you'll get a scorecard based on your results and a free 39 page report built all around our six signals, which are sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. So jump on the website, bodyshopperformance.com and take our test. Finally, thanks for listening to this show. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard and it's added value to you, share the episode with someone you think could benefit from it. And don't forget to leave a rating, a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.